Hello, and welcome to Fashion History with American Duchess. I'm one of your hosts, Lauren Stoll. And I am Abby Cox. And today we have Zoe Beery. She is a reporter, an author, a fabulous historian on a 1920s dress. She wrote a wonderful article uh, called Flappers Didn't Really Wear Fringed Dresses Yay. for Racked.com. You can read this article um, on Racked. And it's, I remember when this came out because it was kind of controversial. Like, what do you mean flappers didn't wear dresses? Uh, but if you go and read Zoe's article or you listen to this here podcast, or do both. we're going to, or do both, we're going to elaborate on this. So hi, Zoe. Thank hi, you Zoe. for joining hi. us. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, when I got um, the email from my Racked editor saying that American Duchess wanted to interview me, I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. Because I'd um, known about your brand for a long time. And I, I think what you're doing is really cool. And I've like, my my vintage interest period like barely begins in the 1920s so I've never like gotten um fully immersed in your world but it was it was really cool to see that email land in my inbox so I'm really happy to be here oh we are stoked um so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself you you kind of started down that path just now um Mm -hmm. a little bit about you and how you became interested in 1920s flapper fashion Sure. Um, so I am a vintage enthusiast. Um, I hesitate to call myself a collector because the volume of vintage that I own is probably about between one fifth and one twentieth of what most of my fabulous vintage friends have. But I do wear vintage almost every day mm-hmm. and I got into it, um, gosh, eight years ago now, I think. And like, I think so many people who are into vintage, I, my, my entry point was the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was attracted to that because it kind of like maps a little bit more clearly onto contemporary styles. There are more of the clothes remaining um, yeah. and they're made out of more contemporary fabrics and have a little bit more of like a cut that, that looks familiar. But obviously I have, uh, I think, I don't know about obviously, but I think like a lot of people who are into vintage or as we can tell from the explosion of like Gatsby themed culture recently, just a lot of people generally have always been like really, really taken with the flapper style. Um, And uh, like Singing in the Rain was one of my favorite movies for a really long long time, still Mm. is. I, I think that that might even be the first memory I have of really connecting with what the 1920s looked like. Um, And so I got into vintage and at the time I was living in San Francisco, I now live in Brooklyn, but Mm. as you two both know, um, in the Bay area in Oakland, there is an event called the Gatsby summer afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. My first time was this from that. as, As I started to get more and more into vintage, I'd say probably about like two or three years in and like part of my friend group became vintage people who I met through Mm -hmm. events and through online communities around vintage. Um, And one of them who I think you both know, uh, my friend Monica, delightful, (laughs) wonderful woman. I hope she's listening to this so that she can squirm. (laughs) She's modeled for us a few times too. I know. Well, that's why why I was like, oh my God, didn't Monica like model shoes for them that one time? So In a fringed flapper dress. <laughs> it was beaded fringe. It was beaded fringe. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So uh, I'd started hanging out with Monica um, and she was like, you know, you should really come to Gatsby. I think you'd really like it. And at that point, I still was mostly into 1950s, becoming more interested in 1940s. But I, I looked at 1920s and 30s fashion and I, I saw something that I didn't think I could wear. Yeah. Um, with the 1920s, it was like, well, I have a little bit of a more hourglass shape. I think yep. that that's not going to be flattering on me. Um, and the other thing too, for me is that I ride my bike almost everywhere. And so the mm-hmm. idea of wearing garments that are that, you know, precious and that rare and also made out of such delicate fabrics in many cases, it just was like not something I ever bothered with really. Yeah. Um, it felt like very unapproachable to me, but she was like, no, you should come. Like I'll lend you a dress, like, you know, come to this thing. Um, and she, and she was like, yeah, you know, like, let me help you out because there's a very strict dress code there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the things that came up, as I think happens in a lot of conversations between people who are really into authentic vintage around vintage events, was the fact that like people can get varying levels of, of frustrated or disappointed seeing these modern nylon flapper dresses show up <laughs> at things like the Gatsby afternoon, yeah. things like the Jazz Age party. Um, and that is, I think, the first time that I became aware of the disconnect between how flappers are sort of conceived in the popular consciousness mm-hmm. and what they actually looked like. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So, so you wrote this amazing article, uh, which we're gonna we're gonna dip into the points of this. Um, but as you were writing this article and afterwards, what were your biggest surprises and biggest takeaways from your research in into this? Oh my god! It, I mean, it was so fascinating. Um, I, the reason that I love writing articles like this is that I just get to find people who are experts and who love what they do and are not jaded the way that normal journalistic sources are. (laughs) (laughs) And I just get to talk to them about like all this cool stuff that they do. Um, So I think some of the, the like surprises that, um, that I had, uh, I spoke with Patricia Mears, who is with the museum FIT, uh, excuse me, the museum at FIT here in New York city. Um, I think one thing that was really surprising to me was learning why designers put fringe on garments in in the 1920s. Because I went to her and I was like, you know, I know that fringe did exist in the 20s. And, you know, even, you know, was it just a decorative thing? Was it this full fringe thing that we see now? And she explained to me that the the fringe was, was cool for movement. Like it was a neat idea, but that because of the way the fringe was constructed by like endless, you know, threads of silk mm-hmm. all bound together very, very densely, um, it was so heavy and also fairly delicate. And so to if you were to wear what we think of as a flapper dress in the 1920s, considering what it was made out of and how it was constructed, it wouldn't probably be something that you would be able to like, do a Charleston in without it like popping up and down a lot, maybe getting tangled on itself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it would, there were these very elegant, beautiful pieces that had a heaviness and a weight to them. Yeah. And she explained that the fringe was used more as a decorative element to weight the grain of fabric in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. 
yeah, so she showed me some photographs of pieces by Madame Vianney, who, as you know, we know was famous for her incredibly deft use of bias cutting and how mm-hmm. she used fringe on the bottom of bias cuts to help, you know, weight fabric down in that way. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, and she also showed me photos of some of the more fully fringed dresses and she pointed out that a lot of them were actually sequins that were sewn onto fabric strips. Um, So that was one really surprising thing was learning how fringe was used. The other thing was uh, when I got to talk to Janine Basinger, um, who is the chair of the Wesleyan film department and was sort of one of the founding uh, people of of film history. Mm -hmm. Um, She talked to me about why flappers emerged in the popular consciousness in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the explanation that she gave me was that in the 50s, when Hollywood was having this big boom and there were, you know, spirits had been raised after World War II, there was this looming problem in story development, which was that if you were going to set a film in the contemporary period in the 1950s, you had to explain what the male lead was doing during the war like he either had to be a soldier or he had to have some very good reason for not going to war otherwise he would be you know a blight on the film because he had like let down his country and so instead of dealing with that they went back to the 1920s because world war ii hadn't happened yet and they just erase it um and so there's this huge boom of films made in the 1950s set in the 1920s And like she said, the reason was so that they could basically remove the war from the time period of the film and have so many more options about how to develop the characters and how to tell the story. I find that interesting because there was a war before the 1920s, too, but apparently we don't care what the men did in in that war. Well, that's because they all died, Lauren. (laughs) Apparently, it was like, like, oh, you know, it was... I can't do math. You know, that was like, you know, 30 years ago. Like, we don't care anymore. We only care about the yeah. thing that happened like 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Interesting. So we have the birth of um, the flapper as we know her today, not mm. in the 1920s, but in the 1950s. Yeah. And but but this is the confusing part is because everybody who knows a little bit about 20s goes, oh, yeah, but the, there were fringe dresses. There were fringe dresses. Mm-hmm. So in the 20s. So we are drawing a distinction here between what a 20s fringe dress was really like and what a where our modern nylon fringe dress really came from which was not the 20s yeah. so mm-hmm. can you elaborate um you mentioned before and before we started recording about the handiwork and the fabric construction yeah sure um and you you kind of were talking about that a little bit earlier of how f- the fringe was actually made in the mm-hmm. 20s um now how did that change in the 50s so what had changed was that by, so, so oh, this is actually another interesting thing tying into what uh, Professor Basinger was telling me, was that um, because the, the film industry was still on a studio system, the costume designers for all these films, they had all these old costumes from the 1920s in the archives of these film studios, but the, the way that... Um, so the way that our popular current conception of a flapper dress, you know, this nylon thing that is lightweight enough to dance around in, it came from the invention of um, like paneled 
fringe, which came along with synthetic fabrics in like the late 1940s. So that by the 1950s, when costume designers were having to make these costumes en masse for, you know, chorus lines of 30 or 50 women, they had just a, you know, a, a, oh my God, I can't think of what the word for it is. Um, oh, I know what it is. <laughs> they had available to them fringe trim. Yeah. So they could just make, a, you know, a slip dress and mm-hmm. then just machine stitch rows and rows and rows of this very lightweight <laughs> nylon fringe onto it. Um, and the reason that that couldn't happen in the 1920s was because you know, one, we didn't have those really lightweight synthetic fabrics, but fringe was constructed by weaving together into, like I said, these very, very dense strands, pieces of silk fiber. And uh, Professor Mears from FIT was telling me that the fringe itself was often very long and it had to be either looped over and over again or cut, but either way, it was always sewn on by hand, like strand by strand by Mm -hmm. strand. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. and a Hollywood costume designer, obviously you can't do that. We <laughs> don't have time for that. that. <laughs> no. So, so we have a technological advance that, that superseded, is that the right word that overshadowed, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, the original technique, um, people who know fashion today know that this happens and has been happening for a very long time. Um, but why didn't they just use the original costumes? Yeah, so the original this, stuff. Yeah, so this was um, uh, another thing that the Professor Bachner told me, which was that people in the 1950s um, saw previous decades as just being very old-fashioned and dated. And she explained that the reason people saw it that way was that obviously the internet wasn't a thing back then and neither were VHS tapes or television showing reruns of old movies. And so any conception that people had of earlier periods was really based on mostly family heirlooms or like old newspapers or old magazines or old photographs and and the emphasis there being on old. You know, vintage wasn't a thing. There was no value placed on antique items as a thing that you would want to wear because it would just look really tacky. It would look out of date. You know, it would look out of season because when, you know, fashion was a little bit more streamlined and a little bit more guided by seasons and by years. It, it looked tacky to people. It, it didn't make sense to them to see a dress um, that was a straight cut when they were walking around wearing things that had like a nipped waist and a full yeah. skirt. Um, and so costume designers knew that studio bosses wouldn't want to distribute a film that people would look at as being old fashioned in an unappealing dated looking way. Mm -hmm. And so instead of going into an archive and, and recreating something in a historically accurate way, which is what a lot of costume designers aim to do now, because we value this idea of historical accuracy, they would look at a reference piece. Some of them were even old enough that they had created those costumes early in their careers, identify portions of it that suggested the era and then create a new garment that had those little touches and those those little nods to the 1920s, but looked modern to those audiences. Interesting. That's um, yeah. So uh, Abby, um, you mentioned when we were talking yeah. about this before. Yeah. The the sexification. Yeah. Modern sexification <laughs> of 20s dress. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I found that really interesting when you brought it up because you referenced like the Marilyn Monroe photo shoot and obviously Marilyn Monroe is a 
you know, sex icon, essentially. Yeah, people would be um, like, I want to get a photo of Marilyn Monroe. Like, why can't I see her waist? Like, yeah. what is that? Yeah, <laughs> you know? and, 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 but I just found it so fascinating because it's, it's this weird, like, just juxtaposition that we have going on. Because we have the 1920s. Like, if we look at the 1920s as a period in history, it is fascinating for the the gender bending, the sexual revolutions that were happening, Mm -hmm. the complete shift in culture, especially if we're looking at like Paris and Berlin in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, they were so way ahead of even where a lot of cases where we are today socially when it comes to sexuality and gender and androgyny and things like that. But then we have the women playing with the silhouettes and the much more um, garçon fashion silhouettes, the much more boyish body types versus, you know, the very curvy ultra femme uh, body types that were essentially very fashionable before and after, especially if we look at the 1950s. Like, I think you Mm -hmm. might have mentioned like Dewar's new look or or something like that, or my brain's just kind of flowing right now with with ideas. Don't we always mention Dewar's new look (laughs) in any conversation about vintage? That just wasn't totally obligated to come up at some point. But, but... The 1950s at the same time was such a sexually backward era, you know, mm. and, and I mean, being a, a 18th century dress and culture historian at my core and dealing with people on a regular basis going, well, they did this or they did that. And it's always these very backwards ideas of sex and mm-hmm. gender that you can very easily pinpoint to what I like to dub the neo-Victorian era of the 1950s. You know, we ah, have a very yeah, backwards yeah. push on women's liberation. We have a very backwards push on what women's roles were in the household, much more so compared to even like the 18th century. But then getting back to the whole flapper thing, here is a very conservative culture, right? That's making mm-hmm. movies and their costumes are what I feel a very sexualized idea of the 1920s. We have very tiny spaghetti straps. We have shorter hemlines. It's made a very sexually forward and progressive culture more sexy in a very backward yeah. era. And I don't know what you yeah, think about that, way. but I'm just like yeah. completely fascinated by this weird oh, juxtaposition. Well, I mean, let me take off sex. my let me take off my vintage collector hat and put on my uh, amateur armchair feminist theory. <laughs> um, they are, I mean, they I, are I pink knitted hats with, with, with uh, kitty ears. Oh, <laughs> so, oh God, don't get me started on that. Um, <laughs> I do not, I don't have one of those. Uh, anyway, um, what I think is, I think it, it makes perfect sense though, right? Because like if an era like the 1950s in which women were were increasingly subjugated in which it was very important to present women as unthreatening um, and one of the ways that we remove women's agency and that we make women um, unthreatening is by reducing uh, us to our sexuality and presenting mm-hmm. us as a passive sexual object rather than... And, empowered person who is in control of her own sexuality and free to explore and express herself the way that she wants. So like, of course, in the 1950s, if you were looking at a time like the 1920s, where women were very sexually liberated, where like you were saying, gender was fluid, sexuality was fluid. Um, I, would, I don't want to say that. I think that it's, you know, look at a period like the 1920s, where women were literally casting off a uh, tool of um, repression, corsets, and creating a, li- a life for themselves where they were able to, to physically 
themselves to the world in a way in which they were liberated. And there, you know, we live in a patriarchal society, and there is nothing more threatening to patriarchy than uh, not just a woman who is who is liberated, but who is liberated sexually, because sexual repression is, is a way that we control women mm-hmm. and uh, neuter women and make a, and make us, you know, not threatening to men and to male, excuse me, I should say, cisgender heterosexual male sexual desires and the male gaze. So of course, if you have the 1950s, an era in which women were being repressed at every turn, in which our contemporary conception of gender roles was really, really firmly cemented, looking back into a period of the 1920s, it would be completely antithetical to the goals of the period to show women living in the 1950s who were going to see movies, an example of a woman who just didn't give a fuck. I mean, a woman who could wear what she wanted, who could go where she wanted, who could express her sexuality, not just around men, but around people of different genders. And it was under, you know, it would undermine the entire social program of the post-war era. And I think, you know, it makes perfect sense that Hollywood would need to make sure that it was filtering the 1920s through a... through a, a gender lens that conformed, that, that yeah. conformed, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think Hollywood was doing that on purpose. I don't think they were sitting around going, "We need to subjugate women." Yeah. Um, but it, it was what was expected. You think about it, and then you do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was what it was expected at the time. Um, it's programmed I, into I, us. I noticed um, earlier that you guys were talking about. I hear this comment all the time. I can't wear 1920s. I can't wear 1920s. I don't have the right body for it. Mm -hmm. Well, funny, everyone in the 1920s didn't have the right body for it. Okay, really fast, really fast. I used to work at a hat store and people would come in all the time and be like, oh, I I like hats, but I can't wear them. And it's like, motherfucker, that used to not be a choice. Like until like the (laughs) 1960s, there was no such thing. No, even the 1970s, there was no such thing as not being a person. It's like you you just got to wear it. (laughs) Sorry. So that kind of idea that oh, I have a curvy figure, so I can't mm-hmm. wear 1920s. Um, true, there are, I, I have a very boyish 1920s figure, and mm-hmm. there are dresses that look like shit on me, and mm-hmm. there are dresses that look fucking fabulous. It really just depends, just like clothing does today. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. you get a 1950s costume designer that puts a sack dress on his actress or her actress and goes, wow, that looks terrible. Nip the waist in, do some darts. I mean, even my Gatsby dress this year, I felt like a striped potato in it because it was a true 1920s cut and it just did <laughs> not flatter me at all. And Abby told wait, me but later. Wait. <laughs> but, but when we say flatter, like, right, what we're talking about is flattering based on our contemporary conception exactly. of constitutes yeah. flattering to yeah. a form that is read as female. Yep. Exactly. You are dead on with that. Exactly. It is totally like our perception of what is considered attractive at this point in time because we want to even if we're wearing vintage breaking your mentality of trying to feel like you look attractive for Mm -hmm. the 21st century audience it's very difficult very very difficult and and this is actually I'm just going to go totally off topic because it's a thing that I love talking about and I just have to put this one thing in Mm -hmm. um it's interesting that you say that because one thing that I experience wearing vintage and that I think a lot of like female presenting and very feminine presenting mm-hmm. people who wear vintage experience is that we're recreating a very high femme look that yeah. in its time was considered the pinnacle of feminine beauty. Mm-hmm. But then you take it to 2017 
and it just like confuses people and scares men. It's like, Oh, like your hair looks incredible, but I can't like run my fingers through it. Uh Like you are wearing something very tailored and something very flattering, but it's also very often, especially with like 1940s and 1950s, like you're very covered up. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's tailored, not tight. And so it's like, you're, you're, maybe making yourself feel attractive, but it doesn't fully map onto what is considered attractive today, Mm -hmm. even though it was considered incredibly beautiful like 50 years ago. Well, I think that's really interesting, the point that you bring up there, because I feel like sometimes wearing vintage, and you mentioned you're an hourglass shape. I'm also very hourglass shape, and I feel very attractive in 1950s and early 60s silhouettes. I feel Mm -hmm. like my shit does not stink. I walk around like, yeah, that's right. I look amazing. But, oh yeah, but <laughs> I I I know that I'm not fitting the norm of what's considered attractive today. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, yeah. that is changing. If we want to talk about the, the change in ideal body types um, in today's culture, but you know, we grew up with the super tall, very thin, very androgynous female models, and I will never be that ever. Mm-hmm. And so it makes yeah, modern too. fashion really hard. Grow. Yeah, it's like I'm five foot four and mm-hmm. a half. That's it. Like I cannot yeah. be five foot seven, even if I tried, unless I wear heels every day, which is why I do. But it's you know, <laughs> um, it, it's interesting because you know you're completely correct. It's this weird thing where where people will find what you're wearing attractive when you wear vintage clothes, but they don't necessarily know how to interact with it because um, you're not conventionally trendy or attractive, find- but you're still fully attractive but you're not, but you are. And then it gets, yeah. (laughs) I I mean, to your point, I think you can draw this line between um, something that people can find aesthetically or conceptually attractive. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm, one thing I do love about living in New York is that nobody cares about what you're wearing, which means that I don't get stopped on the street anymore to get asked if I'm like wearing a costume or going to a film shoot, which I really appreciate. Um, Nonetheless, you know, people all over the place um, tell people who wear vintage often that, you know, you look incredible, you look beautiful, you look gorgeous. And they're attracted to what you're, the image that you're putting out into the world and the way that you're presenting yourself. But I think there's a difference between that and being like sexually attractive. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's sort of like where this, this breakdown happens. And if we, we want to bring it all the way back to the, the 1920s and, mm-hmm. um, sort of the differences between like period correct 1920s fashion and what we conceive of it now this way. Another thing that was surprising to me uh, that I learned was that even though the silhouette of 1920s fashion um, is like we've been saying basically the complete opposite of silhouettes that were found attractive in the 50s and to some extent today, uh, there were still ways that people would sexualize their clothes like wearing a an almost entirely maybe not entirely sheer but a dress that had a suggestion of sheerness with a beading detail that like was a panel of arrows straight Mm -hmm. down the front like basically pointing to your crotch yep you know or showing off your shoulders and your collarbone Mm -hmm. you know it, it just because the tailoring was different doesn't mean that the idea of like sexual attractiveness yeah. or just communicating sexuality didn't exist back then. Oh, totally. Yeah, I have an original uh, beaded uh, 1920s. It's a uh, velvet with, with beading uh, 20s dress and it's cut completely out on the sides. 
like just oh damn just it's just like this deep cut down I'm like you know someone could be rocking some amazing side boob if they wanted to with that (laughs) I will not be that person (laughs) but yeah it's completely like the side it's it's sleeveless and completely cut out and it is very sexual if you if you think about it from like that perspective um, of course, just like how the fabrics, because Lauren and I talk about this too with ni- original 1920s dresses, how they hang on the body. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you can feel like a potato sack, but sometimes you do feel like this, you know, art deco sex goddess who's like, I may. That's you know, how I feel when I'm wearing 30s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it depends so on the dress. Yeah. Right. right. I, have, exactly. I have a couple original 20s dresses that I'm like, oh, I'm a sex goddess. I will wear them to bars. <laughs> And then yes, I've got something that I'm like, this is, this, is a, this is a sack. But I find that you have to do the entire look. Like, yes. if you don't do the entire look, you don't do the shoes, the hat, everything with that dress, it, um, then you lose the illusion fuck, and it doesn't work nearly as well. I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, I, as somebody who doesn't wear a lot of 20s, maybe I can't speak to it in terms of that period. But I think there are pieces that you can mix with a more contemporary look and still have them well, I think especially with 20s and and this gets to something that I, I also know you wanted to talk about which is why pop culture has been in the throes of a 20s revival for like mm-hmm. a decade now mm-hmm. which is that um I mean 20s clothing was the first like modern clothing and it still looks pretty modern yeah um, yeah I mean and I, I think that for people who don't want to go for a full head-to-toe period look 20s can be a really cool thing to do I will say I don't think American Duchess podcast listeners are guilty of this but just in (laughs) case like you're listening to it in a store or like you send it to your friend I will say that there's a difference between mixing vintage pieces with a modern outfit and altering vintage pieces to make them modern don't do it (laughs) we just had this chat earlier today (laughs) yeah Funnily enough, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> full circles. Well, I think you. I think you're right. I, I, um, I, I agree with both of you all when it comes to the idea of mixing vintage and modern. Because my normal day to day aesthetic is, is vintagey, moderny, Abby mix up goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is like one of those things. Like I think you can take some very twenties things and make them mm-hmm. appear super modern. Like for example, I bought a winter coat last year. That's basically a cocoon coat, but it's, it's modern. <gasps> Where's um, it from? It's a Kinsey. It was, I just bought it on Amazon. <laughs> but Oh, dang, that's cool. Yeah, but it's basically a cocoon coat, but it has a modern front to it. And it, it mm-hmm. looks modern, but you can see, like, this shadow of the 20s in it. Um, wearing, like, you could find some dropped waist dresses in stores a few years ago. They weren't as boxy as some 19 original mm-hmm. 1920s dresses were but it is hard but at the same time it's like if I want to look like I'm really wearing 20s and feel very comfortable in my 20s dress that you know with how big my bust is and how big my backside is that I don't mm-hmm. always feel I feel a lot bigger in it than what I might feel if I'm wearing like vintage fifties or early sixties that if I Mm -hmm. completely embrace it with the hair and the lipstick and the eyes and, and just make myself look as much like Clara Bow as possible, then it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it does, I guess, and it kind of goes back to the idea of what we were talking about with sexuality and vintage that 
people will find it attractive, but they don't know why. And mm. so you can almost hide behind that by fully embracing the 1920s look and with the fairy <laughs> curl in the hair and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, that. you're like almost inhabiting a character. Yeah, but this goes, but still this being goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the sexification. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we don't want to go that far with the terminology, just the modern the modern take on it that, and we've said this in previous podcasts as well, like every generation that looks back to the 20s or really any vintage decade has its own take on it. Uh, mm-hmm. For instance, Unique Vintage produces some incredible beaded fringe dresses. I have two. They weigh mm-hmm. like 20 pounds each. I love them. Wow. Uh, they're very nicely done. I mean, beautiful, but they still have a little scoop in at the side. They're, mm-hmm. they're still, it is a modern take and it's always going to do, be 2017 or 2016 yeah. does does 1920s even no matter how good it is so the whole wrapping vintage style into your wardrobe yeah by all means but it if you're using a real vintage dress a real 1920s dress I mean they, they even did this at the time I have originals that have the sides tailored in mm-hmm. to scoop just a little bit in. It was oh, done. Interesting. Yeah, it was done at the time because whoever bought that dress was like, wow. I feel like a potato. potato. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just gonna... I did want to say about um, Unique Vintage specifically, and I guess it is exemplary of the current interest in like mm-hmm. vintage or 1920s inspired trend right now. I do like that unlike the 1960s revival and the sort of like Halloween costume version of flapper dresses, their dresses are actually like fairly long by modern standards. Yeah, and they're not, yes. domi- they're not dominated by the, the just sort of like flat fringe panel. They're using fringe more often as more of an accent and using the beadwork and the design element of the dress as sort of the showstopper. And I, I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that that you know the idea of what constitutes a flapper now that there's been this enduring interest in the era is becoming a little bit broader because as I learned from the experts who I spoke with about this piece, like you know, fringe was one element of of flapper fashion. It was a very broad variety of uh, decoration, of colors, of fabric manipulation, mm-hmm. and it was so expressive and so beautiful. Um, and I like that also color is starting to come back into it because, you know, if you look at 1920s dresses, there are some incredibly brilliant colors in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for such a long time, it's been like, oh, just like a flat black, white or red. Maybe you'll yeah. see like a kelp or something like that. But these, you know, these beautiful like ochres and like burnt orange and the turquoise and the purples, like it, it's cool to see that coming back into the popular vernacular of flapper fashion. Yeah. yeah, you bet. I mean, there's still the, the short above the knee mini dress mm-hmm. flapper version. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's still the, the nylon fringe happening. But I think we are a little bit more sophisticated in what's available today, thanks to uh, uh, the brands that are really trying to do mm-hmm. proper tabard looks and proper, like, you know, paneled, not fringe, but panels, beaded panels. Um, and it's part of our own culture of demanding or, or wanting to be more accurate. Uh, we were mm-hmm. talking about accuracy in movies is more important today mm-hmm. to us than oh, it was yeah. in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of leads into the last little bit, um, which we've we've been talking about all along, but modern parallels between our gener- our youth generation now and the youth generation of 
of the 20s, um, and this is kind of a deep question here. Um, <laughs> so what do you see that, that are not necessarily fashion-related? Fashion has, you know, obviously ties into it. Um, what's important to millennials and the whatever we're calling the next one? <laughs> the next? Generation Z, I think. <laughs> whatever letter generation we're on. Is um, it going to be triple, double A once we start over again <laughs> after that generation? We're just going back to bra sizes now. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what, what's important to youth culture today that's wearing these 20s revivals versus what the world was like for the youth back then? What do you think? Um, I mean, I think some of the parallels are incredibly clear. You know, socially, we look at the fact that the idea of gender fluidity mm-hmm. and not, not, you know, uh, not just uh, a rolling back of the of gender roles, but of the true breadth of gender expression that has always existed in the world is becoming an ongoing, increasingly prominent conversation. Um, You know, that's obviously one. Uh, Another thing is that, you know, the continued struggle of people of color, particularly black people in America is, is, you know, because the 1920s, although still very segregated in many instances and, and still a time of great, brutality committed against mm-hmm. people of color was a yeah. time when their the walls were down a little bit more, mm-hmm. especially when you look at the creation of swing dancing and the fact that social dancing became one of the few ways that, you know, miscegenation was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see the parallels in, in discussions about race and gender now and in, you know, casting aside the morals and the values and the the lies really of older generations about how people's identities um, are fixed and about how some identities are better or more normal than others. You know, that's a really wonderful parallel between youth culture today and youth culture of the 1920s. Um, at the same time, though, uh, I was thinking about this, you know, because you had sent a couple of these questions mm-hmm. over beforehand yeah. about how a lot of the emulations of the 1920s that are happening in terms of events and pop culture, they're just looking back at upper class, straight white people. Ooh, you know, we have very good these, point. Yeah, we have, you know, what what's the theme here? Oh, mm-hmm. you know, you can say 20s, you can say Art Deco, but most often we're saying Gatsby. Yeah. You know, where's the film about, where's, where's the culture and the parties and the events and the zeitgeist around the cotton club mm-hmm. or around, you know, uh, Marlena Dietrich, you know, mm-hmm. where, where is the celebration of the 1920s as a truly transgressive period? You know, it's not there because the recreations of the twenties mm-hmm. and, and now, now I'm taking off my amateur gender theorist hat <laughs> and putting on my democratic socialist of America. Um, <laughs> Because these recreations, these very glitzy, glamorous, decadent recreations are all based on people being able to pay entry uh, prices into events that are modeled on the 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not about deconstructing social mores or mm-hmm. about um, celebrating what made the 20s a truly remarkable period. They're about indulging in what we imagine as the decadence. Yeah. but not really engaging with the transgression that was like the underpinning and the true fueling of that culture at the time. Do you think that I has think to that, do that's with that's this? interesting. Oh. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> I already talked because that was awesome. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting that this is funny that you bring up Gatsby, Gatsby parties, everything's about Gatsby because it's mm-hmm. a real buzzword and we've had multiple movies made. But for anybody who's paid attention to the plot or read The Great Gatsby, 
the entire book is underpinned by the the show of it and the disdain for mm-hmm. that kind of lifestyle and that Gatsby himself was a fraud that he came from you know poor beginnings and and it was a tragedy and you know he dies in the end uh spoiler Spoiler. alert (laughs) well if you didn't get through freshman high school english (laughs) i never read the great gatsby in high school (laughs) oh we at least watched the movie (laughs) both both of them small town and yes all of them uh, but but yeah, I mean, the main character who was not Gatsby, the narrator, uh, talks about how how dirty he feels of all of this, uh, the parties and the not not the music so much, but the parties and the money and the champagne and blah 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 blah. When mm-hmm. the world was actually a really shit place. Yeah, I mean, and that's like one. we all want to escape from like the terrorism of capitalism, right? Like, who doesn't want to do that? Um, and it's it's kind of similar to what happened with a uh, monopoly, right? Like that was a game that was invented to demonstrate the evils of the like accumulation of money and capital and and how it fuels how it destroys quality. And now it's just thing, yeah, <laughs> the like now this this way that people like do it so that they can feel rich. And mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of a similar thing with with Gatsby parties, which is not to say that, like, obviously I go to them, like I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't do it, but I think it is interesting how so often, and this happens with so many things, we find ways to like commoditize Mm -hmm. um, revolutionary or transgressive periods in time or, you know, um, archetypes like the flapper in a way that, or, or even like going back to how the 1950s recreated the flapper silhouette, we find ways to commoditize them and Mm -hmm. recreate them so that they become less threatening. Going back uh, to that, with so, when Lauren so and I like name our shoes, Gatsby. <laughs> uh, I, I want to go back to something about about the whole concept of Gatsby and and luxury and and indulgence and things like that, and how mm-hmm. here in America we don't necessarily do a good job talking about like you brought up Marlene Marlena Dietrich, um, and I'm wondering, and this is me putting on way back college course that was focused on Paris and Berlin in the 1920s and 30s and the art and the social upheaval and everything that was happening Um, Mm pre-Nazi. And I I wonder if it is because so much of that was happening in Europe and America was getting like some of it, you know, but we were still Mm -hmm. being Americans, uh, (laughs) you know, prohibition and things like that. So we have a kind of our own weird story when it comes to the 1920s. And obviously we, as a culture, were not as horribly affected by the great war as the England was and Europe was like, we came in Mm -hmm. at the end, you know, we were like, Hey, we're here to save the day. No problem. Um, (laughs) we have men that survived instead of wiping out an entire male generation. Um, that I wonder if maybe, the American filter of the 1920s is affected by, by that. And I, I mean, I don't know what's going on in Europe. It's, it's been a minute since I've been able to go over there. And, and, and if they're going through a similar interest in 20s and 30s fashion and culture and, and, mm-hmm. and social shifting and, and going back to, to all of that, I wonder if how much different of a take they would have on it because of what they went through in the 20s yeah. and 30s that we didn't go through. Um, and maybe over there, it's going to be a much stronger discussion of the shift in culture and the rejection of um, indulgence and everything that we talked about with Gatsby just a second ago. That was just me thinking on that. 
No, that's a really, really good question. I would I would love to uh, to hear or read the answer sometime from somebody who's <laughs> from over. That would be really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's how they view it versus how we view it. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Well, I, I know that um, our friends in the UK and my husband, who's British, and his parents uh, have a very different take on the 50s, very different yeah. than we do mm. in the United States um, post-World War II. Uh, rebuilding Britain, um, yeah. totally, totally different than anything American. And I would imagine that it was probably the same for the 20s, mm-hmm. the European take, especially in like France. Can you imagine? Like, I don't think they were like, woohoo, yeah, flappers and parties. But there was that revolution um, in art and culture and music happening there as well. And, but it was it's kind of the dark side when we think of like Bauhaus and mm-hmm. and the art and Dali that were that was being produced then it had a lot of pain in it and a lot of breaking from I guess traditional uh genre paintings and that kind of thing mm-hmm. it was dark and dirty and the films being made were scary and they oh, were like terrifying broken world yeah yeah and that I mean America has we've always been such an idealistic nation that mm-hmm. that chooses to focus on uh, what we want to be rather than what we are. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's a good trait. The, the bad trait, good trait. Yeah, I, I think that's a good illustration of of how there was that divergence, you know, because I think the reason sometimes that American audiences are so excited about the 1920s is that we see the, you know, the maybe not the, quite the decadence, but certainly the optimism and the excitement and the unprecedented, like really beginning of like globalization and getting to mm-hmm. see all these new ideas um, and try out all these new things, like who wouldn't be intoxicated by that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why we find it so appealing um, and and why we idealize it that way. And, you know, there, like you were saying, there wasn't as much of this tinge of reality and not just reality, but like the surreality mm-hmm. of reality at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which had, in our modern view, very little to do with surrealistic art, mm-hmm. which had a totally <laughs> different... Anyway, uh, art history aside. Um, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, yes. I love it when conversations go this way where we start with a, so flappers didn't really wear fringe and we end up on this like social deep dive into. I mean, that's what's always behind fashion, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's always an expression of the social mores and the social and political climate of, of the period. I mean, and that's why I love learning about it. It's why mm-hmm. I love writing about it. I'm sure it's a big part of why you love doing what you do. And it's, you know, another, another reason that I sometimes, not sometimes, that I'm always so angry that, that fashion is treated as a lesser art or as frivolous, obviously. That's Amen. Amen. I am but, so sick. It's fashion is so important. Sorry. That's like a total other side <laughs> tangent that I can go down the road, but fashion makes the world go round. It really does. And, it, and like, it teaches us so much about how people live and how they want to live and, mm-hmm. and what's going on around them. I mean, it's, and that's, you know, the 1920s are such an amazing expression of that. Or like, you know, we didn't even get into the fact that like the reason that the silhouettes of the 1920s looked the way that they did was that, you know, maybe a decade earlier, women were starting to play sports and yeah. flapper dresses are based on the silhouette of tennis dresses. Yeah. And so it was like everyday women looked at women who were playing sports and they were like, oh my God, like, how do I, how do I sign up for that? You know? Yeah. yeah. The first uh, uh, 1920s dress I ever made for my very first Gatsby, when I first started getting into historical dress, uh, was a tennis dress from the VNA. It was my own shitty version of it. But <laughs> I loved it. I was like, this is great. I felt very pretty. 
yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's tell such stories. Um, I don't know if you're planning on parting ways right now, but there was one thing that you mentioned to me earlier that I definitely wanted to touch on. We have time. Let's touch okay. it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, just going to pop it. Um, uh, you asked me, um, am I dreading seeing a bunch of... Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Funny. During Halloween season, and I have two answers to that. Um, one of which... Oh, I can start that up for, um, I have two answers for that. One of which is that understandably some people came away from my piece feeling like I was judging or chiding them for wearing, uh, like a fringy nylon flapper dress, which is understandable. You know, that wasn't my intention because obviously for a variety of reasons, whether it's that you don't have the body type or you don't have the interest or the money or the access or whatever, like nobody should have to wear anything or not wear anything. Like if wearing like a flapper Halloween costume makes you happy, do it. I've done it before. Um, even after I knew they didn't exist, uh, I still did it, um, yeah. <laughs> for, for um, looks good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, the, the point of the article was to connect, um, the fact that the original flapper dresses just generally were supposed to feel very liberating, but also that the kind that had fringe had a very regal, like elegant feel to them because they were mm-hmm. so heavy and they were so carefully draped that they gave you this, like, it imbued you with this confidence and this this feeling of being almost, like, statuesque that, yes. you know, when wearing a nylon fringe dress, it, maybe it's, you know, probably fun, it's, it's, you know, it's enjoyable and it lets you dance around a lot, but it's not the same experience uh, intellectually or physically. Yes. Um, and so I, I wanted people to start thinking instead about, like, you know, if you want to really inhabit the sort of flapper aesthetic, like, how can you find something to wear that makes you feel really liberated, which is um, cool. I was, was going to say that I one thing that I've gotten into since moving to Brooklyn, which very much surprised me, is I've gotten really into techno and like house music. And uh-huh. when I go to those kinds of parties, I have a couple of, I call like tent dresses. They're just mm-hmm. these like polyester, really swishy, flippy, straight cut dresses that are really not tailored at all. They're mm-hmm. basically like 2016 versions of, of flapper dresses and it really does feel very liberating to like not have to worry about anything um but anyway two things right is that like wear a flapper halloween costume if you want to if it makes you happy but uh the other thing <laughs> I think the only thing i read about halloween is that especially in the week leading up to it and i'm sure that you two have had this happen to you as well if you're just wearing your normal clothes, people will come up to you and be like, oh my God, are you like Rosie the Riveter? Are you Betty? <laughs> that happens like, all, all the time. All the time. No, like I know that, you know, 40 or sorry, 51 weeks out of the year, my <laughs> entire work is a costume. And that for this one week a year, it looks like uh, it doesn't look like a costume because everybody's wearing a costume. Um, so usually for Halloween week, I just wear like jeans and a t-shirt. I just, <laughs> you dress up as a normal, as a normal person. Yeah. Yeah. From, I, would, I would rather. the 21st century. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I would, I would rather see like 5 million flapper dresses than like one person come up to me and ask me like, who <laughs> Step as for Halloween when I'm just like going to the grocery store. <laughs> See, I will, I will, I totally have used that to my advantage once because I don't think Chipotle does it anymore. But a couple of years ago on Halloween, if you showed up in costume, they'd give you a free burrito. Oh, what? And so one day I just went after work, and this is when I worked at uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So I was just in my work clothes, which were 18th century, and I got a free burrito. 
So like, whatever, I'm going to use this to my advantage. You guys think I'm a weirdo anyway, so I'm just going to get a free dinner out of this. <laughs> wow. I, uh, I've, had, I've had the whole, is that a costume thing yeah. happen a, a couple times. The, you look like Rosie the Riveter things. We wear headscarves all the time. Yeah. I never take offense to it, um, but I always sort of, Sometimes I get a bit cheeky <laughs> with people and I start like joshing with them. <laughs> and oh they so- sometimes they play back and sometimes they look at me like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I had somebody my- come up to me in an airport. I was wearing a headscarf. He says, do you know who Rosie the Riveter is? And no. I just looked at him and he was kind of a smarmy guy. And I just looked at him. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt like a jerk afterwards. So I'm really Good. sorry. You know, my favorite thing that's ever happened to me around that was, um, in the beginning of my journey with vintage, uh, when I was really into sixties and I much more frequently wore the full outfit with like gloves and a hat, which I don't really do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I was out shopping with my mom one day and, you know, my mom was born in 1948. So she like saw all this the first time around. And unlike some people who, who see these clothes coming back, she really loves it. Um, we were in line for food and some person is like, oh, excuse me, miss, you look like really beautiful. Like, are you, are you in costume for something? And before I can say anything, my mom looks at him and is like, she's in costume for her life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's um, amazing. Well, this has been, Zoe, this has been absolutely awesome. unreal. I mean, amazing. We are so lucky to <laughs> have gotten you so much. on. Yeah, anytime. It was, so a, it was a joy to talk with you. I don't, I don't often get to... Um, to marry uh, my professional interests with my personal interests. And then on top of that, get to talk with people who are so knowledgeable and passionate about this subject. So it's, it's really a treat to be able to do that. So I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, this is cool. Great. Awesome. Um, and if you would like to read this mm-hmm. article we have been talking about, check it out on racked.com. The title is Flappers Didn't Really Wear Fringe Dresses by mm-hmm. Zoe Beery. Um, and if you'd like to check out American Duchess, we're everywhere. We're on Facebook. We are at AmericanDuchess.com for our reproduction footwear. We are on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Mm-hmm. We're all over the show. So Don't forget us also on RoyalVintageShoes.com, especially since we're talking about the 20s. Absolutely. <laughs> Miss Royal Vintage on Instagram and Royal Vintage Shoes on Facebook. Give mm-hmm. us a follow. We love vintage. And if you love vintage and historical too, we want to be friends. Thank you so much for listening. Thank I'm you. Lauren. And I'm Abby. And this has been Fashion History with American Duchess. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.